This has been an amazing year for Queer Public. From production with Ariana in the first half of the year and then releasing episodes in June until now. Thank you so much for tuning in. And a special big thank you to Ariana Martinez. You are my star, my dapper prince, and my favorite weirdo collaborator. We've got two more episodes to leave you with before the year is out. This one and another that we produced in collaboration with Netflix. We're excited to keep telling stories. So for now, we'll leave you with this. How do we best honor those who have helped us become who we are? This is the Atlanta Letters. I'm your host, Aaron McGregor. May 15, 1984. Dear Nita, got your letter yesterday. I was having one of those seesawing, angry, depressed days so bad that I told them I was sick at work and went home before lunch. Never did that before. Anyway, when I got home, your letter was here, and I sat down and had a good cry. A good healing cry, I think because I was holding something concrete in my hands, something that proved I just didn't dream or fantasize what had happened in Atlanta. I was at a place in my life that I was beginning to come out internally. I had written the words, I am gay, on a piece of paper and I took a match to it. I wasn't even prepared to go any further than that. The year is 1984. It's May. Diane Giles is 31 years old. She's married with a seven-year-old little boy. They live in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Diane gets an opportunity to travel to Atlanta, Georgia for a conference. It's her first time away from home without her husband and child. Diane finds herself in a library looking up a local hotline and shortly after, on a Friday night from the hotel lobby, she calls the Atlanta Gay Helpline. These hotlines were established in the mid-70s as peer listening lines for the gay community. They were tremendously useful because they connected queers with a listening ear and a community member with which to confide. So Diane calls the helpline and is connected with a volunteer named Vernita. Diane talks, Vernita listens. And Diane is playing it cool, asking about local bars, but she doesn't really know what she's supposed to say. She just knows she has to say something. She has to say the thing that is burning under her chest. Diane calls back again to Vernita's work, a gay bar named Tallulah's, on Saturday night. And on Sunday morning, Diane calls Vernita at home to speak to her one last time. And over the phone, Diane comes out to Bernita. This marked the beginning of a seven-month period of time where the two women wrote letters to one another. What you're hearing is Diane reading some of those letters she wrote to Bernita from May to December 1984.
It was just so much easier to tell someone, a faceless someone, a thousand miles away from home. My husband decided last Friday to go see his mom and family in Miami for Mother's Day and flew down Saturday morning for a three-day weekend. Sunday night, Jimmy, my seven-year-old, spent the night at his buddy's house, and I had the whole place to myself. About 10.30, I drove down to the only gay bar in town, just outside the city limits. I called last week, and the bartender said it definitely was the only place in town. <laughs> and at that very moment, the woman outnumbered the men in the place. I drove in and turned off the engine, but that's as far as I got. I just couldn't open that van door. It's funny, after all the songs written about the heart, you'd think we'd learn to take better care of it. This message brought to you by the American Heart Association, who asks you to tell someone you love to take better care of their heart. Give someone you love the gift of love. Your gift is the gift of love. Thank you, David. Newsweek on Air, a copyright co-production of RKO Radio Network. I went back feeling even worse. Since my Monday morning blues when I got your letter, but it couldn't come at a better time, I drove over to Carolyn's office and brown bagged it with her and Chris. They're the two I told you about. I offered to give Chris a ride back to her office after lunch. About 200 feet from her office building door, I said, if you don't see me for a couple of days, check the cycle ward and send flowers. They knew I was real down, so Chris said, if I needed to talk to someone, I could talk to her and she'd listen. We drove over to a nearby county park and walked through the woods and talked. I started out by pulling out the slip of paper in my wallet that I had Tallulah's address and phone number and handed it to her and told her the whole story about Atlanta that she was now officially the second person I ever told in my life. I did it face to face, too. You were right about instincts. I picked the right person to tell, thank God. Chris and Carolyn have been a couple for about two years. We both cried. I sure dampened a lot of clinics yesterday. You'd think I had controlling stock in Kimberly Clark. And just like I felt when I hung up the payphone after our Sunday morning conversation, I was 50 pounds lighter and 8 inches taller. I came out of those woods with such a feeling of inner peace. The two of them came over after supper, and we talked until I had to leave to get Dennis at the airport. Gosh, it was like coming home again. They're going to take me to Milwaukee to some gay bars real soon, if I can swing it. When I was in high school, a good friend bought me a wall hanging with Snoopy and Pigpen on it, and it read, A friend is someone who accepts you for what you are. It dawned on me a couple months ago that if it was true, then I never really had any friends in my lifetime because no one knew the truth about me. So how could they accept me? Five more shares of Kimberly Clark, please. Well, if I have three real friends now, Chris, Carolyn, and you, that's a good start. I don't intend to discard my old friends or anything like that. I'm taking it real slow from here on in because I'm not sure about what course I'll steer. If you hadn't taken the time and put up with all my phone calls that weekend, don't know what I would have done. 
I owe you so much. I've never even saw your face. Thank you. You can still write to me here if you want, but C&C are getting a post office box in a couple of weeks, and they said I could use it for confidential stuff. That will eliminate the coded letters. Ha! I cracked up at the one you sent me. Write if you can, Diane. Wednesday, May 23rd, 1984. Good morning. This is really dumb, starting a letter to you when you haven't had a chance to answer my last one. I don't even know if you want to keep writing to me. My true pessimistic self is showing. But as the song says, I've been a fool for lesser things. It's funny, but I'm seeing and hearing things from a bird's eye view instead of the worm's eye view. Things I read, people, especially women on the street, songs on the radio, everything has taken on a new meaning. I'm sure my subconscious was picking up on these things because songs I used to like, uh, I thought for the tune, have hit me out of the blue for their words. Now I know I always liked Aretha Franklin's Natural Woman. I pulled out my old Carol King Tapestry album, and Chris introduced me to Meg Christian, including Meg and Chris at Carnegie Hall album. Another first. I wonder where you are, love of a lady. I wonder what you're Carol and Chris took me to Milwaukee last Friday night. The first place, lost and found, was a great dance floor and I wreaked havoc with the lactose in my legs. God, I love to dance. I can't remember the name of the second bar. I guess I handled it pretty well considering. Didn't meet anybody though. If Tallulah was as friendly as these two places, I would have had to walk back to the downtown Hilton alone. Did you know the taxi fare would have been $16 round trip between Tallulah's and Atlanta Hilton? Uh, that's another reason why I didn't go that weekend. So I'm a cheap, gutless wonder. Five twenty-three, eleven p.m. I pulled in the parking lot of Kenosha's only gay bar tonight for the second time in ten days. Chickened out again. Too many cars. It's supposed to be mostly men, but women are welcome, as the bartender told me on the phone. Maybe if Chris and Carolyn go in with me once, I could go in on my own. Why is it that I feel like I'm going through puberty again? God forbid. Is this common? Or does it have to do with kicking the closet door open too late in life? I know it's never too late. 30 ain't too bad. I wish that I had done it 10 years sooner. How old were you when you asserted your true feelings? For that matter, how old are you now? Nosy bitch, ain't I? It seems I'm going at everything with the same desperateness I did before Atlanta. I finally got the truth out, but now I'm charging forward and getting frustrated even more. My search for someone, my writing, my work, everything is heating up. With my luck, I'll have a stroke before I get my shit together. The peace of mind I had last week is beginning to waver, even. What good is coming out if you don't have anyone to come out to? Well, maybe I did this all wrong, in the wrong order, I mean. Any words of wisdom, O oh wise one? Chris and Carolyn were supposed to move this weekend. They had a truck reserved for 5 p.m. yesterday. 
but the other bimbo hasn't moved out of their new place yet. My mom was planning on watching Jimmy while I helped them anyway, so the three of us rode to Racine, next town north, to the ground round, kind of a family eatery with a liquor license and baskets of popcorn on the table. We had a good time and talked a lot and got a little tanked. It's sure good to have someone to talk to about certain issues. It's nice to have someone to write to about them, too. I mean, the companionship between Chris and Carolyn and me in itself was great before my revelation. I've had a lot of beautiful friendships in my life with women slash girls. But this is really special because we can be ourselves. For me, that's a first. 3 p.m. Sunday, June 10th, 1984. This has been quite a day of turmoil so far. The last couple of days, I feel like I have a pro wrestling match going on inside of me. No wonder I go for 4 a.m. bike rides. We had breakfast in town at this restaurant. I was telling Denny about a dream I had about Carolyn getting married to the owner of this restaurant. Out of the blue, Jimmy asked me if they're married. I knew what he was asking, and I damn near choked trying not to show my reaction, so I said, who? He said, oh, never mind, that's right, girls can't marry girls. Hell, what could I say but agree with him? Dennis smiles and says to be on the side, well, sometimes they do. I asked him if he cared to explain that phenomenon to Jimmy right now. He declined. It isn't that I don't want him to know about such things. It's just a pretty heavy item of trust to a seven-year-old. I can see Grandma's face now when Jim Cassie mentions that Mom's two girlfriends are married to each other. And I couldn't say, now that's a secret between us. That wouldn't work either. For now, I try to keep distance between Carolyn and Chris and Dennis, just in case he does catch on. He would make life miserable for me, more miserable than it is now, if you can believe that. Those two are my lifelines. You too, and I'm not taking any chances. Monday, June 11th, 1984, 10.30 a.m. Another day, another battle with my sanity. If I can't talk to Carolyn or Chris today, I will call Racine or Milwaukee. Hotlines. There's a diner here downtown that's run by a real nice gay man in his 40s. Just about all of his help is gay, too. I've been going there a lot in the past year. It's a little hole in the wall that has music, people, city administrators as regulars. A lot of weirdos, too, I might add. It's fun to watch folks there. Carol and I have had breakfast and or coffee two or three times a week there. Anyway, I couldn't stand anymore this morning, so I asked John, the owner, about the gay women's social network in this town. I knew I was more or less giving my hand away, but I think I can trust him. He says some women do go out to the shack, but most of the party-hardy types... There are some professional women, but they avoid that place pretty much. Overall, they tend to stay pretty undercover here. Tell me about it. He also got up on your soapbox briefly about excessive drinking. We discussed the need for a coffee house here, a place for meeting people, as well as intelligent conversation. He also told me about the hotlines, but I told him I had all those three numbers in my wallet now. So that makes number four, and the door creaks open another inch. It's a good resource for information, 
and I may be able to make some contacts through him. I hope he doesn't assume that Carol knows. They're good friends. One step at a time. God grant me patience, and I want it right now. There's more I wanted to write about, but it'll keep to the next letter. I'll start one again in the next couple of days. I hope this thing reads smoothly. My head isn't in gear for accurate proofreading, so pardon the errors. Take care, Diane. P.S. Thanks for just being there. ADM, Wednesday, June 13th, 1984. Notes from the counter of Frank's Diner. Muggy and hot today. Come on, John, turn on the air conditioning. John told me that some of my friends will notice the change and will ask. Others won't want to know. Sounds like good advice, I guess. But there's just a couple of friends, like Sue and Nan and Carol, that I feel an obligation to tell. I'm very close to these, and I feel like I'm betraying them by not telling them in the near future. At the same time, I'm terrified that they may feel that I've betrayed them somehow. Damn it, I'm the same person I was before Atlanta. I don't want people to write me off. I guess I'll find out who my real friends are, eh? But maybe I'm not the same person I was before Atlanta. What do you think? Ha! I wish you knew me before so you could give me an honest evaluation. I told Carolyn to dig me up something good to read from their library so I have something to read sitting around the pool in Florida. Something appropriate. Fiction will do. With a nondescript title. Something I don't have to put in plain brown wrapper around. Nita, I swear I'm losing my mind. What am I going to do down there if I fold and there's no one to talk to? Write a couple dozen manuscripts to you, I guess. First thing I'll do is browse the Miami phone book and get a counseling number to keep handy. I know this letter is a downer. I hope you can handle it right now. Believe me, I'm really doing better today and yesterday than I was the previous few days. I'm on an upswing. I just feel I have to sandbag for the next siege or whatever. How are you? Bottom section of page three is a hell of a time to ask. I'm sorry. I keep rereading your last letter. The pages are getting dog-eared and worn, kind of like Jimmy's old security blanket he had when he was three. I guess I'm surprised that you let me in on so much of your own personal history. I feel pretty honored. You've seen some hard times, too. I hope you can trust your heart and head to someone soon, real soon. Tuesday, July 3rd, 1984, 11 a.m. Dear Nita, so we begin again. Chris decided that Rubyfoot Jungle should be the next thing on my list of educational required reading. I started at breakfast and I'm already halfway through it. Rubyfoot Jungle. You dig it. Anyone with half a vagina left would dig it. Women kissing women is beautiful. And women making love together is dynamite. So why don't you just let yourself go and get into it? This is outrageous. You're a lunatic. That's a distinct possibility, but at least I know what I'm talking about from practical experience. You only know one side of the story. When I make love to women, I think of their genitals as a ruby fruit jungle. Ruby fruit jungle? Yeah, 
Women are thick and rich and full of hidden treasures. And besides that, they taste good. I've been sitting here on the porch for an hour reading it, and I swear the neighbors are going to call the white truck for me. I've laughed and howled so much, as Bette Midler says, fuck them if they can't dig a joke. I've never enjoyed reading a book as much as this one. In many ways, I can identify with old Molly growing up. I wish I could identify more with her as she became a young woman. July 5th, 9 a.m. I finished Ruberfoot Jungle yesterday. The ending left me on a downside and didn't really resolve much of her problems. There I go analyzing again. I still like a good book. Yesterday was quite a day emotionally for me. I went from sky high to bottoming out and right back up again. My stomach was playing the bass notes to a prelude from a horror movie all day. I guess I shouldn't have been too surprised. I called Sue late in the morning and asked if she wanted to start the fourth off right and meet me down at the diner for breakfast. I brought Ruby Fruit Jungle with because I know she's always late. Long about her fourth or fifth cup of coffee, I had to use the john. When I got back, she was thumbing through the book. The bass notes went to crescendo. She said it sounded like a good book, and could she read it when I was done? J.C. and a popsicle stick. She had to have read the back cover so she knew what it was about. I told her I'd check with the owner, and she could probably have it on Friday. So I left the diner at about 8,000 feet and didn't come down till I came home and found Dennis all pissy because I had come home from the office and wanted to go to an early movie. His bad mood didn't last long, even though we didn't make the first showing of Ghostbusters. It was a pretty good movie, and there was something about the leading lady that made my blood pressure start to rise. Anyway, on the way home, I started winding up tighter and tighter like a clock spring. I, I couldn't control it. It got beyond trying to daydream. It didn't work. By the time I got home, if anyone had touched me, I would have thrown the stove at him. I left Dennis to start the charcoal, took some mitol, and laid flat on my back on the bed. It felt like someone was pulling my ankles down an endless slide while strangling me. And that's no metaphor. I mean, that's what it physically felt like. It was like being possessed. I don't know how else to describe it. Voices in my head, the works. Anyone with half a vagina left would dig it. Women kissing women is beautiful. And women making love together for one thing, it's more intense. What are we doing today, I'm not sure how I pulled myself out of it. Relaxation therapy helped it along. Finally, I started to doze, and just mentally and physically drained. Then Demi came in and said the charcoal was ready. Only a half hour had passed since I hit the bed. It felt like hours. God, I was hungry. I knew that it was a good sign. I only had toast and ice cream all day because I didn't feel like eating before. Looking back, maybe my circuits just got overloaded or something. I have so much opposing input up until that time, being with Sue and wanting to borrow the book and coming home to a grumpy husband, and then him being nice and going to a movie. And having to sit there and watch that gorgeous creature on the screen and wishing I was watching it with someone else. I actually considered checking myself into the hospital. I thought for sure I was having a nervous breakdown. Boy, am I glad I didn't. Wouldn't look too good on a resume, would it? 
but it looks like I'm going to have to get in and see that counselor I used to go to. Reverend Larson might be good, but maybe is going hand-in-hand -hand with some chemical imbalance in my system. Time for a good physical, too. Sunday, July 15th, 1984. Party day. This is going to be a mega party, not because of the number of people who will be here, only 10 or so, or the amount of liquor consumed, but because I feel like celebrating. Carol told me to stop in and get my birthday present last night. She said she didn't want to give it to me at the party. Well, I guess I understand when I saw it. It was a suede coat. Not just any old suede coat, but a Bulgarian sheep's wool that she had bought from her sister's rummage sale. Her brother-in-law's parents brought it back from Bulgaria for him, but it was too small. Carol told me I was to wear it as an everyday coat, not to save it for special occasions. She said she watched me standing on the bus stop last winter, shivering in my ratty gray polyester ski jacket, and when she saw the suede coat, she knew it was me. It's the most beautiful gift I've ever received. What's more, it's something Dennis would have never given me. I was so overcome that I started to cry, of course. We had a few discussions about our husbands in the last couple days. We both have had major battles with them since our canoe trip. Carol made us both a good stiff drink, and in between my tears, I told her that there was so much more to my marital breakdown than she knew, and that I wish I could tell her. When I left, she said that when I wanted to tell her more, she'd be there to listen. I went home and talked to myself for another half hour. I couldn't go on accepting gifts like this from her unless she knew the truth. It wasn't fair to either one of us. So I called her up and told her to meet me in the backyard. I wanted to talk. I knew that if I didn't tell her now when the opportunity was there, I had, and I had the courage, it'd be a long time before the time was right. I told her just about everything. She said, is that your deep, dark secret? Oh, big deal. I wanted to give her a big kiss of relief, but I restrained myself. <laughs> she said she was a little surprised, but certainly not shocked. We talked for two hours. She made it clear that she was straight, but it turns out her husband had accused her of the same thing every time she forms a close friendship with a woman. So, I don't know, the whole thing last night was too good. I wonder if she's really not at ease with it, just put on a show last night. I guess I'll know in the next several days. I'd never do anything to hurt her and I don't want to lose her friendship. I hope we both find the special somebody to fill the empty spots in our lives. And then, in early September, Diane met the woman who had become her first girlfriend. And like women do, Diane and Sid fall in love hard, and they fall in love fast. Diane is about to file for divorce, and the letters start tapering off. Friday, September 20th, 1984. Hey, woman. Hmm. It looks like I'm falling in love again. But this time is so different because she can respond to me. All the other times in my life I've had overwhelming feelings about a particular girl, woman. I've had to keep my thoughts in my hands to myself. Not so this time, and I feel like singing and breakdancing. There's no stopping us on the top of Mount Everest. We are so hooked on each other, the days apart are spent like junkies on withdrawal. I'm not kidding. All the fears about being out, the physical attraction 
dangers on the home front, the power of her love on me, they all just disappeared. Don't get me wrong, I'm not getting careless again. She won't let me. Dennis told me last night he intends to watch me like a hawk. So let him. I'm not going to give him any chances, believe me. I take the retainer down to the lawyer's office at our first meeting October 2nd. No openings with the lawyer till then. Now for the news you've been waiting for. The gutless wonder ain't gutless no more. Not even semi. This old green bean hit the gate at full speed, mind you. Thursday, September 20th, 1984, <laughs> it's his house. <laughs> so the next time you hit Tulula, raise your beard in a toast to class of 84, okay? Now that I think of it, one of your first letters to me closed with, and may all your fantasies come true. That just about describes it, too. If telling Chris and Carolyn last May was like coming home again Thursday afternoon was like the traditional turkey dinner with all the dressings. As always, Diane. Monday, October 1st, 12.30 p.m. Dear Nita, sorry for not writing. Moments to myself are far and few between. Don't feel bad. A lot of things in my life are being squeezed in tighter to make room for Sid. Writing for you has stuck on the back burner, but don't feel crummy because some stuff has gotten shoved off the stove altogether. Last night, the two of us went out with Sue and Nan to Taco Bell. Well, I can't bring her home to meet Mom and Dad, and these two are practically family. Anyway, they checked her out like two older sisters would take care of their baby sister and more or less gave their stamp of approval. It was cute. We went back to Sue's place they wanted to play Trivial Pursuit. I said, okay, as long as it wasn't too long of a game, and gently explained that well, Sid and I don't get to see each other a lot. Well, this devilish look appears in Sue's eyes, and she drags Nan off. Pretty soon, they're gritting from ear to ear and take us to the spare room where they had pulled out the flip sofa and had lit a candle and incense. <laughs> I just about died. Turned out the gang had done the same thing for Nan and her hubby one night where they were still dating years ago. I guess sometimes I underestimate the strength and sincerity of my close friendships. Obviously, many of my friends would have never think of doing what they did. But it demonstrated their acceptance of me and said in a way no other could. God, I love them. December 17th, 1984. Yes, I'm still alive and relatively well. How about you? Life goes on here and I'm learning all kinds of new things, mostly about survival. You know, making ends meet barely, bumming occasional meals at mom's, worrying about my car, nickel and diming me to death. Last week I had a flat tire my third in five weeks. Starter trouble, fixable without buying a new starter. A blown heater hose, which I replaced myself. Pretty butch, huh? I started going to the Unitarian Universalist Church here in town, which has the same minister as the one in Racine. Tony Larson, who introduced me to Sid. Anyway, I've been going in a small group of about 25, meet every Sunday. They've gotten to loan me a little. Some know I'm getting a divorce. A few eyeballs popped when I walked into the candlelight service with my love last night. They all know her. She played guitar for the services every Sunday until she started working Sunday mornings last August. I was a little nervous, but not really uncomfortable. It felt right. At least now I don't have the frustration that I'm spinning my wheels. I'm controlling my own destiny, and sister, does that feel good. 
I've started writing in my diary, minus the code I've always written in before. No need to do that anymore. Dennis and I are getting along nicely, amazingly enough. He helped put the snow tires on my car two weeks ago. He's seeing someone romantically, and I'm happy for him. It means he's healing. I really do wish the best for him. Her marriage is over, and Diana's making plans to move in with Sid. It's going to be real rough for a few months. we got to come up with escrow, installation fees for gas, electric, phone, etc., etc., etc. Well, this letter sure has dragged on, huh? Maybe you'll get it for New Year's. Groundhog Day? Whatever. Things have mellowed again. Another oasis in a sea of problems. Ask me tomorrow and everything may have turned upside down again. It seems our love is the bottom layer of it all that holds our lives together. Other layers get peeled away, more piled on top, but we struggle on knowing that this turmoil won't last forever and we can settle down in a place of our own in the near future. There is an end to this craziness. Right now we're both at John's, living like a couple of bag ladies. Write me at Carolyn and Chris's post box for now until I figure out where the hell we'll settle. C and C are fine and say hi. So many other things have happened in the last couple of months, things that I used to sit and write to you about, but now there just isn't the time. Know that I still think of you often and have those one-sided conversations with you when things scrape bottom around here. How's the soccer season going? Kicking ass? Sorry, bad pun. Anything new with the lavender jogging shoe crew? More importantly, how are you? I wish I had some spare money to sit and talk with you on the phone. Knowing you, it could be a while before I hear from you. Just remembered, you have a birthday coming up. Got to get this in the mail tomorrow, no doubt about it. 29th of December, 1984. We just put money down in an apartment in Racine. Two bedroom, big kitchen, three closets, praise the Lord, a shower, and a skylight in the living room and a skylight in the bathroom. And only $250 per month, including heat. We're in officially January 15th. Crappy neighborhood, but I guess we can't have everything. Gonna be real tight money-wise for the next six months, but we'll make it. I'll let you know the phone number and address when we get settled, okay? Be good, especially to yourself, Diane. <laughs> and that was the last letter. Hi, my name is Diane Giles. I'm uh, a journalist or a former journalist with the local newspaper, the Kenosha News. And I'm 65 years old. I started writing letters and wrote my heart out. I put everything into those letters that I really couldn't put in my journal at that time. I, I was terrified, really, that someone would find out, and I wanted it all in my timeline. And uh, I couldn't put that in my journals. What if somebody had picked them up, you know, and or my husband had seen them? So I poured out all my feelings and everything I had in those letters and worked through things on paper. Um, this was a connection to... Uh, a lesbian, you know, another lesbian, another person to have contact and bounce ideas off of and kind of tell what was going on in my life and documenting. I'm really nutty about documenting things. I haven't picked up these letters in a long time. Um, 
and reading them through them all again just put me right back to where I was in, at that point in my life. Oh, we wrote these letters for a major part of that year, and she was my lifeline. Um, but we've never met face-to-face -face <laughs> to this day. Uh, I did contact her to ask her to, to, to send me these letters, and she did. And I'm very, I'm very glad she did. Because I considered it part of my personal history, too. History is my thing. I've been writing a local history column in the newspaper for 30 years. So I'm kind of big on history, and this, is, this was personal history, I always felt. I know it was different from what other people's lives are going through. I mean, straight people's, it just, it just is. <laughs> I'd like to be able to, to meet her or talk to her. But I almost feel like I'd be intruding again. You know, I, I took how many months of her life in this communications, and, and I know she was going through a lot of stuff, and it was hard for her to write. But I, sometimes I really I think I might have been a, a burden to her. I don't know. I hope not. I hope she's well. Diane and Sid were together for seven years. They split up, and eventually, Diane got together with her current wife, Gail, who she actually met in 1985. They live in their home in Kenosha, Wisconsin, with their daughter, Penny. Although we had Vernita's letters to Diane, we decided not to read them for this story because there was a lot of personal details we didn't feel comfortable sharing without her consent. And then, just as we were finishing this episode... Hi, Diane. Um, so I have some news. Mm-hmm. News. Okay. Um, um, because I found Vernita Pinto. <gasps> you found her! Holy shamoli! I found her and... Uh, Does she remember me? She absolutely remembers you. I found her... We found Renita Pinto. Because I didn't. Next time on Queer Public. Hi, Erin. This is Renita uh, Pinto. I got a letter from you um, a couple weeks ago about your working on the project. And I think I'm the Renita Pinto that you're talking about. And with the help of Netflix and their series Prism, Tales of Your City, we were able to go meet her. We've got that next on the show. Stay tuned. It will be in your feed before you know it. Please stay in touch on social media. And please, please write us through the website and tell us about what you thought, about what we can do better, and what you want to hear more of. Email me personally at erin at queerpublic.org. Lastly, if you're moved by anything you heard in the past eight episodes, tell someone you love about us. This episode is produced by myself, Erin McGregor, and edited and sound designed by Ariana Martinez. We heard music from Meg Christian and Chris Williamson, Chris Zabriskie, Kai Engel, Linda Bruner, Jill Dawson, Augustus Bro and Gallery 6, Blue Dot Sessions, Mon Plaisir, and Matt Oakley. A special thank you to Melissa Rucci, who insisted we drive from Philadelphia to Kenosha, Wisconsin, and who loaned her voice for the Ruby Fruit Jungle scene. Another thank you to Gail and Diane and Penny for opening their home to us for a hot meal after a long day of driving. I'm your host, Erin McGregor. Thanks for listening. 